Welcome to Financial Repression Authority's Roundtable Insight, where the best fund managers, economists, and industry leaders discuss the key investment issues and challenges in the current macroeconomic environment. Hi, welcome to FRA's Roundtable Insight. This is program show host Richard Benuli. Today is Thursday, February 22nd. We have Larry McDonald and Ira Harris. Larry is the founder and editor of the Beer Traps Report, an independent macro research platform focusing on global, political, and systemic risk with actionable trade ideas. The firm also offers a live institutional Bloomberg chat service with over 650 institutional investors on, on that chat. As a former VP of distressed debt and convertible securities trading at Lehman Brothers, uh, he wrote a book on the fall of the investment bank titled A Colossal Failure of Common Sense. And he has a new book that's coming out next month uh, called How to Listen When Markets Speak. And we'll we'll get into that shortly. Ira is an independent trader, hedge fund manager, and global macro consultant trading foreign currencies, equities, bonds, and commodities for over 40 years. He was also CME director from 1997 to 2003 and also a stint there most uh, recently. Welcome, gentlemen. Hi, thank you for having me, gentlemen. <laughs> well, thanks, uh -huh. for, thanks for putting us together, Richard. You always make things interesting, so let's get interesting. Great. Uh, thought we'd begin first with uh, your view, uh, Larry, on your, the global macro view on the economy and the financial markets. Well, the... Uh... You know, today is probably a historic day because you've got this incredible move this week in NVIDIA. And, uh, you know, the amount of capital that's in financial assets relative to hard assets, you get close to 22 trillion in the NASDAQ 100. And you only have, uh, in all the oil and gas companies and all the metals combined and all the uranium, uh, you have less than less than two trillion bucks uh, combined. So you've got, it's really a, a massive overdose of financial uh, financial assets. And a lot of that is driven by expectations of lower inflation. And uh, we've had Fed governors this week come out, they're still pounding the table on, you know, that one, 2% inflation regime. But behind the scenes and listening to institutional clients behind me, we run a conversation each day with about 650, like you said, institutional investors. And there's a growing sense in the chat and belief that um, sustained stagflation probability is rising dramatically in say the last like three, four weeks. And I think that's gonna be the, you know, instead of looking backward at like, at, you know, the earnings of say technology companies, let's look forward and, you know, what does the planet look like a year from now? So you're referring to based on that stagflation view of the institutional client uh, chatter on the on the chat service. Yeah, it's 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 driven by you know labor costs. It's driven by um, it's not just supply chains. It's just a different world now. It's a multi it's a multipolar world. This is the main thesis of the book. Um, we sat down with James Baker, former Treasury Secretary, Neil Ferguson, uh, the Harvard historian, and a lot of hedge fund managers that are friends of ours in the chat and around the world. And, and it's just that you've got just a, a multipolar world, but that's less 
easy to ship goods around the planet. And there's just a lot of, there's a lot of sustained inflation drivers that weren't with us over the last uh, decade. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And your thoughts, Ira, on this stagflationary emerging environment? I, yeah, you know, I, I don't get into structuring things like that. Not, not that I don't have the, the background. I, so when I say stagflationary, I don't know, but I'm willing to listen and learn. I mean, those are some powerful voices. Um, and, you know, James Baker, who I may not agree with all the time, but I always respected him because when he walks into the room, he gets everybody's attention. He's that, you know, it's, uh, and Neil Ferguson, I've, who I've had the pleasure actually to meet and talk with, but I've read his work, you know, his history of World War One, or of the, actually more of the peace, the peace conferences, much as anything. These are people who you want to pay attention to. Uh, and again, uh, you know, and I get the sense from Larry that it stimulates thinking to lead to profitability or to avoid bad situations because you you want to look at things from outside. I mean, that's the way I've always operated. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fourth boy in line. I had three older brothers. So my existence was always looking outside in and trying to figure out where I was going to make things happen. And how to prevent getting a crap beat out of me at the same time. So it carries over to my training. So that's what Larry's trying to do. These And these are the right people because you, you avoiding, avoiding bad situations is probably more important than making the good ones because your work will lead you to the good ones. It's the bad, it's the bad situations that undo a lot of really productive work. So I, I admire that. So I want to, Let's figure it out what he's got because I think there's some really important stuff there. Yeah, can you can you go into detail, Larry, on the themes and the messages from the book and also how it's aligning with what you're hearing in the institutional chat service? Okay. Um, well, say 10 years ago today, the global population was about 900 million people less. And so 10 years ago today, so we put, we've added almost a billion people and we've taken 5 million jobs out of the United States. We've decimated the Rust Belt. There's fathers in the Midwest and in the Rust Belt that come spend their days at the library and come home to their families and because they, they just can't find a job. And they, they, that whole manufacturing base has been hollowed out. But the good news is we've raised the standard of living dramatically in India, China, Bangladesh. And so if you're in India right now and you're, a 25 year old young man or young woman working in a call center, your work, you're literally making probably, you know, 10 to 200 times more than your great grandparents. And, uh, but you're also a massive new energy consumer. You've got a moped. Um, there's a 1.4 billion people in India, and there's about a billion people that 1 billion human beings, 1 billion human beings that don't have air conditioning. Uh, so, we are juicing, and this is the fastest growing energy consuming planet, uh, country on the planet. The fastest growth is in India. So whatever we do in the UK and the US and Canada around energy consumption is this is a rounding error uh, relative, in terms of growth of carbon consumption relative to this, you know, the planet. And then you look at AI and this is just like the most 
pot smoking, crack smoking situation for energy versus demand that like you can imagine. So everybody's freaking out today and uh, there's a massive celebration of the the uh, $18.4 billion, uh, what we would call data center revenue that's coming from, from data centers to, to buy NVIDIA chips, $18.4 billion. And that's growing much faster than every, you know any analyst expected a year ago. So a year ago, NVIDIA in the first quarter bought zero stock. So, so the NVIDIA brain trusts that are growing this company at that fact, didn't see this coming, right? Because they would have bought some stock back. Uh, so in the fourth quarter of 2022 and the first quarter of 2023, which is a year ago, it almost very little to no stock was, was bought back and now they're aggressively buying back. So think of that $18.4 billion of exponential explosive growth in data center chip demand. Um, there's estimates out there, and we've talked to different consultants, but the estimate in 2022 that these data centers, this is 2022 now, the data centers would consume about 460 terabytes of uh, terawatts of energy, 460. Um, and so and the estimate for 2026 was supposed to be 1,000 terawatts. And now, you know, you look at the growth, uh, and just listen to the NVIDIA call like we did last night, and that thousand that thousand terawatt estimate is probably off by at least fifty percent. So we're talking about two thousand terawatts. You're talking about the energy consumption of two countries the size of Germany, just in data centers powered by Nvidia chips. I mean, this is just exponential growth. At the same time, I'll wrap it up. The capex uh, ten years ago in capital expenditures in oil, gas, uh, metals, uranium. Uh, was on a plane, a very significant trajectory. Uh, but since then, that trajectory from 2014 to today, we're down about $3 trillion of capital expenditures that we need to make those investments to run the planet Earth's energy, to satisfy the future energy demand. So we're $3 trillion in the hole on investments to find the energy, but we're also you know, massively exponentially increasing energy consumption in the emerging markets and as well as in technology. So this is just literally, I, I think, a very certain energy crisis, 1970s style crisis between, say, late 2024 to 2026. That's the main one of the main pieces of, of the book. And thank you. Interesting. Your thoughts, Ira? Well, you know, uh, so we've actually done some podcasts with through this uh, through financial repression authority with Doomberg and uh, uh, Adam Rosenweig from uh, Guring and Rosenweig, who are, I mean, these are really good. I like, I like those guys. Yeah. A lot. And, and Dr. Uh, one, I mean, I sat on one with those two and then Richard was able to throw in, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Aluji, uh, who, mm -hmm. so I go, what am I doing here? This is like ridiculous. I'm, I was like the village idiot uh, who showed up, uh, but they said, no, 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 no. We want to know your macro. I said, I, I know, but I, I love that. And what you're talking about, and everybody forgets what it takes to drive these uh, centers, these data centers, and they don't turn off. 
So <laughs> they don't. They right? Don't they, they, they don't. You can't turn those off. I mean, no, they, no. So, so it's interesting. I'm, I'm wonder, I always wonder when I look at them and their performers, how they should be the ones building, you know, small uh, nuclear facilities based right. on campus, right? Because yes, you know, their 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 fixed costs would be high, but they'll gain that back. The return on that would probably be, I you know, I haven't done the math on it, but would be recouped pretty quickly because they're they're not going to battery storage because they're they're not building wind farms there and they're not building solar because the amount of storage that they would have to it, it would be there. I think the numbers would dictate that they have to go to nuclear, you know, small nuclear. They may as well pay the U.S. Navy to get some of those nuclear uh, powered ships. And just hook into them and say, okay, this is now our power source, you know. And it's um, it's you're, the points you make, and then everybody expects the growth of the middle class between China and India and Indonesia, and for us to sit here, you know, for our college graduates to sit there, you know, in their uh, apartments, going, well, you know, we have to go to a, a totally, uh, you know, no carbon. Uh, not going to happen because as we see india and china are building coal-powered plants why because germany's taught them when they turned off those nuclear plants and now all of a sudden germany's burning that crap brown coal that they were trying to get away from they're they're not going to get caught in that situation everybody who wants to dictate to them not going to happen because you know you get into the works of well, where you're going and Vaclav Smil, you know, energy and civilization. Uh, and Rosenweig has been great with that. You know, you're not, you're not cutting that off. Once you get a taste of it, once you get that air conditioner, once you get that computer, you want power. And uh, it's just not, it, these, these whole decarbonization, yeah, it's great, but it's going to be very expensive. And the emerging world, or what do we call it this week? The emerging world. Oh, it's the global south this week. They're not going to. They're not backing off from this, and you're not going to tell them they can't partake of this. They've got the taste, and and rightfully so, as you talk about the growth in the middle class. You know the jobs that moved out, and that's the political conundrum that Donald Trump tapped into. He tapped into it in 2016, and paid attention to it. Nobody else. Everybody gave it lip service, but nobody really paid attention to it. He says, huh, why, well, you know, I, he had Bannon on his shoulder. So Bannon was certainly very aware, aware and uh, of what was going on. And Trump was willing to go with it because he looked at the other 15 people up on the platform. What am I doing with them? These are all professional politicians and they're going nowhere. So I may as well pivot my way. And he, and he did. And he scared everybody. But but that's what he tapped into because globalization and I'm a globalist. I've made my living being a globalist hasn't worked for everybody in the same way. So, uh, I see that's where you're going. I think that's from, from what you've already said. So we may as well go down that road because that opens up a whole lot of discussion about many things. Yeah. And then we think about the fed, like, okay, what's the fed going to do? And 
in the chat, one thing I'm hearing is the data points on commercial real estate, the marks. So Japanese banks, um, they have a very uh, formidable, serious marking of the market of their foreign assets. So if you're a Japanese bank, uh, they really make you mark your foreign assets uh, to market aggressively. And um, so in the last like three weeks, we've had Tokyo Marine, Aurora, and then in Germany, I think it's PBB. And then we had New York Community Bank. And then we had HSBC this, I think it was yesterday. Yeah. All of them are marking their uh, mark to market on their commercial real estate down. And this is just the beginning. Because if you look at companies like MetLife, MetLife has an investment portfolio of like $650 billion, $640 billion as of uh, the last data I could, I've seen. And they have about $100 billion of commercial real estate. And the stock's at an all-time high. So you can see that like within the banking system, um, companies, companies like U.S. Bank or M&T Bank, uh, they've rallied a lot off the lows, but we have probably like an emerging situation where we, we have potential stagflation in terms of inflation revival in the, some of the data, but at the same time, we have um, real credit risk that's kind of creeping into the banking system. So like six, nine months from now, you're most likely going to have uh, a Fed that's forced to to stop. To, well, not, and I think we have, we, we're going to get rate cuts, aggressive rate cuts, when the job on inflation is not done, and a whole bunch of different assets, asset classes do well in that world. Is there an implication that it would be a challenge in the financing of of projects that would be necessary to meet the the data center requirements? Linking back to your book in terms of the infrastructure and the energy that is scalable enough to meet the requirements? Well, the, there's a lot of empty space. So there's a lot of uh, office space and space available for, you know, for the, for these data centers. So, and then we're seeing massive conversions, like the apartment conversion from office is at a record pace. And there's just too much office space because of like a bunch of different things. Number one, you've got a new interest rate. When you suppress the cost of capital for over a decade, like the Fed did, and then you have a free market driven cost of capital, um, you know, bad things happen because you just have a trillion dollars of commercial real estate that's priced at, at the wrong price because the Fed suppressed rates at an artificial, you know, screwed up, you know, insane level. And now, when now when if inflation as inflation's revived, the Fed's forced into this new cost of capital regime, and that makes a bunch of commercial real estate, you know, it, I guess it, it, it just doesn't work at the previous existing finance. Is that it goes up like basically two two hundred to five hundred to maybe even a thousand basis points depending on where and, and what kind of company. So you've got a lot much higher interest rate cost. And that just doesn't, you just, the buildings just don't work. The financing doesn't work the same way. And so we have you know, potential, you know, I, I, not, not a Lehman crisis, but definitely a credit event coming. Say, so if you just do the math on all the high yield bonds, all the leverage loans, all the commercial real estate, it's about, and the investment grade and high yield and leverage, leverage loan, commercial real estate debt. It's about $2 trillion of maturities. In 2024 and 25. Now, some of that's going to be okay. In other words, refied, but there's, there's a big chunk of it 
that that's that's going to have a problem. So some of the commercial real estate you're saying could be repurposed towards like data centers as as one one type of um, investment asset class to consider. Yes. Mm -hmm. And what are your thoughts on the actual energy input? Um, as Ira mentioned, we've had uh, Adam Rosenzweig. He speaks a lot on energy return on energy input investment required for, for that type of energy source with solar and, and windmills uh, being low, right? Five to one, 10 to one versus oil and gas, like 30 to one versus nuclear, like a hundred to one. Yeah, uh, right. And mm -hmm. that's the new, this next gen equity, we recommend a next gen. So we, we've been in the uranium trade since 2020. We've been very public on Twitter and with clients. And so we started off with a position in um, URA and Cameco. But what we've noticed is a lot of money in, in uranium, which is nuclear power, future, the whole thing. Um, a lot of the money moved into the uranium commodity and to Cameco. And this is what you see in the beginning of bull market cycles with, with uh, commodities or any type of bull market. Uh, they usually move into the mothership first. Um, and there's not a lot of buying early on of uh, smaller cap companies that are in the energy space. One company that, that we, we've been recommending, and it's speculative, very speculative, but it's NextGen, NXE Equity, NXE. And, you know, they just have this, you know, most spectacular reservoir of reserves that, you know, need to be developed. But in the Western world, but we, one, of the, one, of my, one of our points of the book is that where the commodities are now in a multipolar world mean a lot. So companies that have great reserves in safe places like Canada and the United States, those companies, I think, will probably have a premium to other companies that have uh, oil and gas and uranium reserves in more questionable uh, you know, parts of the world. And as you can see right now in Panama, I, we do a lot of work in Latin America. And you know, this is one of the most productive coal mines in the world in first quantum it's it's the most incredible property because it's so it, it has such an immediate access to the ocean so you can mine copper and get it out to sea oh, yeah. you know literally thousand times faster than you can in africa you know getting and so you've got these great uh, properties that are being shut down around the world by governments that don't want the mining in their backyard. So this is another potential, another, not just potential. We're seeing the same thing in Chile, same thing in Peru to some extent. And you just, the, the world is just massively, massively undersupplied and it has a lot to do with political risk. Your thoughts, Ira? Well, I mean, so last week we did a podcast with uh, Peter Bookvar and Chris Whalen. And we discussed Oh, and Chris Whalen to me is standing on it's he's the best to, total bank analyst in understanding how it all comes together. And we're I, I like Chris. Yeah, yeah. I mean his so uh long history with a long time. Um so we're because Peter Bookmar has been talking about, you know, what was coming. He was talking about writing about it three years ago, as others were yourself. So you know, the refinance, when rates started going up and we're coming to it. Now, 
who's going to be able to absorb it. We're going to find out and to be able to, you know, and there's uh, both. Uh, oh, excuse me. Excuse me. One second. Yes. Hello. Yes. Yeah, Mike. Okay. And actually, Larry, if you wanted to elaborate on the the industrial yeah, metals you. that um, form the themes in your book, other than uranium and copper, do you see uh, other like uh, industrial metals that would make sense? Well, I mean, just think of the top the top ten companies uh, market cap in the world today. Uh, it's mostly technology, right? It's your Nvidia's, your Microsofts, your Apples. Mm -hmm. uh, Microsoft and Apple are like together, I think three trillion bucks. And that's, you know, much larger than the entire energy complex. I mean, just literally, I think like, you know, so you've got 10 years from now, you're gonna have a Rio Tinto, a BHP, you're gonna have a, maybe not an Alcoa, but a Chevron in there. So if you think of like 1968, to 81, uh, that's where we shifted from He's frozen. Book, and we had a, you know, supply chains that were stressed around the world because of war. In, in, that, in that era, by the time it all, you know, finished around the early 80s, industrials, metals, oil and gas were 49% of the S&P, 4.9. And uh, right now, industrials, you know, materials, oil and gas, energy, uranium, they're only like 14% of the S&P. So we're definitely going back to a period where not to 49%, but 10 years from now, five years from now, you're going to have a lot of companies that own hard assets that are in your top market cap. And so that those groups, industrials, materials, oil and gas, uranium, they're probably going to go from 14% of the S&P market composition, market cap composition to maybe 30 to 35. And that's, that's the trade we get. We got to really prepare for. I see. Uh, sorry, I did you want to continue? Yeah, I, I apologize, I apologize but I, I was waiting for that phone call. So I'm, I apologize, but yes, I think that's so much. And, um, uh, that was my education background with U.S. multinationals and, and especially using an overly strong currency to be able to purchase loads of assets around the globe to put them into that situation. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I think that's that's a good point as we are coming out of this. You know, one of my favorite picks over the last two, three years has been Glencore. Because nobody does nobody does dirty business, you know. And now, now with Glassenberg moving on, well, he's not really moving on. He's moving out though of running the company. I think. Uh, and Glencore this week announced that they were cutting their dividends, but to me for positive reasons, because they were they were going to pay down debt. You know, it's the problem with a lot of these companies. They take on a lot of debt in order to to grow, and if they don't manage that debt well. They get into trouble. I mean, we see it over and over again. Hey, look at today, Newmont. And last week we talked about Newmont because lo and behold, in that F-13, Druckenmiller comes out and talks about how he's selling some of the more high-tech high flyers 
and rolling into Newmont and uh, Barrick, and uh, and they and when you look at this this stuff, Larry, you know you do it's the price of gold. And people say, oh, you're a gold. I'm not a gold bug. I, me, I, I wish gold would be $41.25, but that's not going to happen because that requires a level of responsibility uh, of governments that we're never going back to or unless it's forced. But it's not going to happen. But you look at this and you look at these gold mining, especially today. Yeah, gold's down a little bit. But I, I went back and did this work. Back in April of 22, Newmont was $82, $83, and gold was $1,930. Well, gold's $2,030, and Newmont is at $31. So you see these disconnects, and when you go around the globe, paying attention to these disconnects become very important for investors. Is that what Druckenmiller's onto? Maybe, but when certain things like this happen, you have to pay attention because is this a warning that maybe gold is just so overpriced and the uh, and the uh, equity end of it gets it? I, I'm, I don't know. Or are the equities just so badly mismanaged that a high price of gold isn't even uh, a good enough catalyst to bail them out? But I only care about it for investable opportunities. And now, again, to avoid the pratfalls that these may present. Because one of these are wrong. Either the price of gold is, is indicative of being too high, or the the mining stocks are the greatest, you know, in, there are things that get, get left behind. As everybody takes stuff off the table, then it, what do they look for? Uh, right. Right? But of course, they, the underlying has to be a quality company. And they have to be qualitatively managed. So when I see Glencore cutting dividends, not because they really have to, but because they're trying to get ahead of their debt situation and, and keep it from being a liability. So they'd rather tell the shareholders, you're going to have to wait. We paid you out very nicely. You, you, it's been a, and it's been a 9%, 10% yield or on top of an, uh, an appreciating stock. What more would you like? That's like being along the Brazilian Real. For the last year and a half, you know, you got paid very nicely for waiting, but now you're not going to get as much capital return in the short term, but we're going to do, and this is a word that has, of course, disappeared from our lexicon. Uh, we're going to act as a fiduciary and be responsible for the longer term, and that's gaining control of the debt. So, Yeah, I think... Um... The way I look at gold is it's at the end of a hiking cycle, what happens is when the when the Fed's hiking that aggressively for 18 months, at the same time, you know, global central banks are buying gold. They're they're not really buying the miners. And so there's a lot of central bank buying. But what happens is that in the early stages of a bull cycle, especially with like I said, with uranium, same thing with gold, people will hide out in the mothership uh and so what happens is you get this big overvaluation of the commodity versus the companies the same thing today with with with, with the miners so yeah that's i, I agree with Druckenmiller. uh the buys here for newmont especially barrack barrack and agnico are screaming buys down here 
Now, you, you do have the Newcrest acquisition at Newmont, and you do have some cost overruns in the last, like, three, two, if you look back at the last three quarters, there is some disappointing uh, management failure or operational failure in some of these companies that disappointed investors relative to past cycles. But the companies are much less levered, and they're generating, you know, free cash flow at, at, at an incredible pace relative to historic data and so the value if gold i mean if, if, if gold been, gold itself has been consolidating for almost two and a half years now around through you know the, that 2000 level and so you're going to get a move here probably in the next year where the fed the fed the fed gets stopped forced into cuts when they're not really done on inflation and it's kind of like a stagflationary environment like jobless claims came in okay today but Continuing claims are like at 18 months. I think it's I think it's one year highs, and so you've got a, a lot of a lot of job losses around the U.S. Deteriorating economy. You got a potential crisis in the banks with commercial real estate, and so all this like forces the Fed into rate cuts that gets you a year from today a much weaker dollar, um, and that gets you you know a big probably move up in in uh, Barrick and Agnico and Newmont. So, you know, so I'm glad, I'm glad you brought it up because you were going that road before and we were talking about the Fed. And one of the Fed, to me, and this is what we talked about, I, I meant to, when we talked about with Waylon and, and uh, Bookbar the other day, you know, we, we talked about our star. And as long as we're having this, you know, I, our star to me, and, and I'm, a, I'm a Marxist Austrian trained and then when I was in graduate school that's what I said but both because I had professors who were I was at the University of Wisconsin in the mid 70s so I had in graduate school so I had professors who were you know very openly and, and would teach it didn't make a market but they would teach it but they also taught you the Austrian school and the concept of debt and so you know I it was the Marxists who saw what was happening in the third world loan situation that's where I learned to how to pay attention to that and learn how to navigate those fields because they saw what was happening with the loan, massive loans for energy imports. So Saudi Arabia would recycle the petrodollars into Citibank, uh, Chase, uh, all the big banks, and they would be relent to sovereign governments who were importing in, in the what we call the third world countries and importing massive amounts of energy and paying a hell of a lot of money for it and taking on debt and debt and debt. Okay, so we're there. But in, to, in today's our star world, with the way the Fed has moved here, so I look at real yields and I look at overnight and short-term real yields because the lesson of Volcker is if you wanna crush inflation out of the system, raise overnight rates high enough, quick enough, and you will you will crush inflation. And, and then they, the longer duration will react to it in, in some fashion. Uh, and, they'll, and they will eventually move to follow. So when I look at our star today, so let's say that inflation is 3.1, 3.23%. And you have overnight rates at five and a quarter, 5.37. So you're running a real yield in that realm of about two, two and a half percent. Now that's not his, that's probably the historical norm. If we go, you know, if we take enough time and look at it, 
but the amount of leverage because of what you pointed out over the last 15 years, and that's what the none of the central banks pay attention to. This system is levered up and can't withstand. They need negative real yields. They don't need right. positive real yields. And that's, I think, why you get to the stagflation, because how else, if you maintain real positive yields of 2% for another year or so, you are going to run into, you You know, as Buffett would say, you're going to find out who's swimming naked. Well, there's a lot of people out there swimming naked because the leverage factor is so, right. is so great. Right. And the consumer, if you look at the Walmart data, like Walmart equity goes up typically, especially when times are stressed, uh, when consumers are stressed because they steal market share from a lot of competitors. And so, and you saw this with the McDonald's numbers, you saw this with Kraft Heinz, people like middle-class families are, and it's an election year, they're really stressed because you, everybody's heard the stat, like the New York Fed has told us a thousand times, like 25% of American families, maybe up to 30% only have $400 in a checking account. At the same time, at the same time, we've got $6 trillion IRA in these money market funds. So the, the, the people in Palm Beach, the money market fund, a guy with 10 million bucks in a money market fund, he's getting 550 grand a year of interest that's up 300% over the last, since 2021. Right. So, or if you have a million dollars, you know, you're, you're up near 50, $55,000 of interest. And that's up from like $9,000, maybe $10,000 in 2021. So that segment of the population is doing great, but the bottom 30% only have $400 in the checking account. They're getting a massive amount of stress. And that's where the Fed's got a big problem in election year because that group is, and you can see it in a, in a lot of the data, whether it be uh, auto auto financing or all kinds of uh, delinquencies that are rising in many different spots in credit cards because that bottom 30% is under tremendous stress because they only have $400 in the, in the bank, according to the New York Fed. And their cost of living has is, is gone through the roof since 2019. Yeah, there's some great points there, Larry. And uh, what are your thoughts on the actual uh, U.S. yield curve, long, uh, short and long end, in terms of trends? Well, the curve is being distorted by Janet Yellen. Okay, she's she's really she and Mnuchin have put the country at risk because the last two Treasury secretaries have been like leaning and issuing tons of T bills uh, when they should have been issuing longer term paper to lock in rates. So now we've got a tremendous amount of issuance. Like, and this is this is really cool to think about. I want everybody to understand this because you can juice markets this way. So let's just say you need to sell $2 trillion of treasuries over the last like two years. If you had sold a lot of longer dated bonds, uh, say 10 and 20 year paper, if she had done that, um, those bonds, because interest rates went up, would have gone down like like a 10-year bonds uh, movement in price relative to a five-month six-month t-bill is like a thousand times more right so if you get interest rates go up your trillion dollars in the t-bill doesn't move right it keeps its value because it matures in six months you know whereas 
uh, your, your trillion dollars in 10-year bonds or 30-year bonds, uh, we've seen there's an Apple bond that was issued by their genius Luca, uh, their genius CFO in 2020. This trade, it's, it was trading, I think, in the 50s because it's like a low coupon and it's a longer dated bond. I think it's now trading in the 60s. So that's, that's you're talking like a billion dollars that's now worth 600 million, $650 million, but it's actually 2 billion. So, so, it's, it's, so just to keep it simple, a billion dollar bond is now worth 650 million. And that's, so what Yellen has done is quite brilliantly, and you know, she's supporting, you know, trying to support the president in an election year. She's, she's in the sense of she's suppressing volatility in some respects because she's issued so much T-bills and that's creating this, that's why the economists are going crazy, Ira, because they're looking at this twos, tens, and it's inversion for such a long period of time. But one of the reasons why it's inverted for so long is there, she's pushing up the T-bills because she's issuing so many T-bills instead of longer dated bonds. And, and it really puts the country at risk though, because if we do have sustained inflation, they're gonna have to refinance all those T-bills eventually at higher yields. and interest on the debt now is 80 billion a month, 80 billion a month. So where are we in a year or two? It's going to be uh, 100, 200 billion a month. Uh, no, not 200, but 100, 110, 120. Uh, that's over a trillion. That's, that's over a trillion dollars a year of interest, right? So it's, uh, and that's dwarfing the defense budget. It's dwarfing Medicare and Medicaid at some point, and it's really going to create them. That's where you get into this stagflation problem, because that's when the Fed gets forced into yield curve control, um, probably early, I think maybe 2025 at some point, where they have to at least suppress some part of the curve. If I may, ahead, Richard. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So we've, Larry, I've, we've had this discussion on this podcast for at least 18 months because once they started jacking rates maybe a little longer so we've talked about it several times we've talked about it because the politics of once you and, and we're there faster than anybody thought would happen once the interest on the debt supersedes the defense budget you have real forget stagflation the, pol the politics of it are terrible and yes how are they going to figure this out and yes you know one and i'm it's not often I find myself in agreement with Larry Summers, but when Summers back in 2020 and 2021 was screaming at them, issue more 50-year, you know, bonds, issue, fund it as long as you can, as long as, you know, as they say in the markets, when the ducks are quacking, you got to feed them, uh, no, right. you know, feed them. And she would, and she, especially as she's gotten, as rates have gone up, she's she's front loaded so much of this t-bill market and i and and i would explain to people this is a huge transference of wealth and i know lizzie warren and they're they're not happy about it which is why i'm waiting for the uh well we'll get to that but they wrote those letters to, to powell right La the uh on january 30th and 31st the same day as the fed meeting you had the four from the senate banking committee uh Lizzie Warren, White House. Um, they wrote they wrote a, a a letter to Powell telling him to cut rates. Now it was interesting that Sherrard Brown's name was not on there. 
as yeah. chairman of the committee. Very, but, I, I missed that. Thank you. you know, but the next day, he came out with a, his own letter to Paolo. Uh, 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 did he? <laughs> yeah, pushing for rate cuts. So that was really interesting. So I'm waiting for the uh, Humphrey Hawkins testimony because this ought to be pretty hot. And oh, yeah. Now that Powell has, you know, pivoted to a more hawkish stance. So I want to see where they go with him. This this will be interesting. But all of this, you know, again, we've seen this. And I, and I applaud you because, yeah, here's Yellen. And I got into trouble on a podcast back in October with uh, Mark Faber, who I, I love, you know, and I I've know you, you, you've been around. So we've done We've done two of them. I did a speech with him in uh, Abu Dhabi. He was so funny. He was, oh, he's brilliant. I, I, I'm telling you, we're, we're sitting there. He's sitting in his pajamas from, from uh, Thai, ah. from Thailand. Mm -hmm. and, and then he starts lighting up cigarettes. Like I thought I was, you know, doing India. a, uh, yeah. I was on uh, with Ricky Ricardo on an I Love Lucy. But my respect for Faber is so great. But and I and I had the temerity in his mind. I said, "Well, Yellen is really bright and intelligent, and he took great umbrage to it." But that's okay because we we came to the point as to why I'd understand it. And yeah, she's playing a a tough game, but I think her timeline is kind of at the end, and they could be in a real difficult situation. But it, but because your knowledge of the Fed is so deep. One thing that drives me crazy is how is Powell able to get a unanimous vote? There are four governors that were appointed by Biden who right. are all labor economists. Exactly. Labor economists, I've read, I've gone and read their research because it's just the way I operate. And I know that historically, if you look at a labor economist, most of them are very dovish on monetary policy because jobs... Right are far more important than, you know, a little bit of inflation. In fact, they right. would probably argue that if you went to four or 5% inflation and it resulted in an alleviation of some of the pre debt pressure, it'd be a good thing because you're paying back with cheaper. Yeah. They all want, yeah, they don't, uh, they want to monetize the debt, right? Ira? It can't help them. It, it's just, yeah, it, it's, you know, for the most part and these, and these four keep falling in line and voting. I, I'm, it's yeah. one of the, it perplexes me. How is he able to hold this group in unity? And then when they come out and talk, like Philip Jefferson was talking today, you go, well, how is it that they keep voting the same way? You know, you and I know if we stood on a corner and there was a car accident and there were 12 of us standing there, would we all agree about the accident that we just saw and who was culpable and how it took place? No. And yet unanimous votes. So I'm asking your opinion. I, I'm missing some, and yet it bothers me. Well, I think we're far, far enough away from the election that they can stand by Powell. But I completely agree with what your, your premise is that, yeah, the whole thing's going to fall apart um, in June, July, because if they don't get cuts ahead of the election and a, like you think about the strong dollar, like one thing that one thing that we did a lot of work on the strong dollar in 2015 into 16 really helped Trump a lot because the rust belts was remember Trump only won Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania by like 140,000 votes. 
it's like it's a lot of uh, manufacturing jobs in those states. So, and you look at manufacturing today in the United States, the data is recessionary. It's it's so there's a lot of uh, labor economists that want job cuts to get a weaker dollar that would weaker dollar would support U.S. manufacturing exports. Strong dollar, you know, is very painful for manufacturing states in an election year. So, yeah, so I think that there's going to be a big break in the Fed, you know, sometime, you know, May, June, where those labor market economists start wearing their, uh, you know, their politics on their sleeves. Yeah, okay, I'm glad. I'm glad because, yeah, I'm glad you said that because it is, it, it, it's, it's really perplexing. Um, this is, yeah, this is a, and I'm glad you talk about the dollar because I'm a current, uh, currencies and bonds are my primary, that's where I begin my analysis and I go, so the currencies, all right, and I'm looking at the the, the weakness in the yen at these levels on a, on a global relative basis is just preposterous. I mean, we're seeing the move in, in the Nikkei, but I'm not sure this is, you know, they want to blame it on the 150 dollar yen, but you know, it's kind of a remnant of the Abenomics and you've had some corporate restructuring in Japan, which Lord knows they've, they've needed it. Uh, has it been aggressive enough? Well, it all depends who you ask, but if you've been involved in uh, Japanese equities, it's, it's been a pretty good run for the last 18, 20 months. So, uh, but, but I, I, I really like your analysis and I think that that's right. But when, when do they come out? Because a vote of nine to three, eight to four would tell me more than any press conference, than any uh, interview on CNBC or Bloomberg. That would, and I'm waiting for them to, to find their, uh, their solid feet, not clay, feet of uh, feet of clay, and start going. You know what? No, we we want to do this. And if you're going to control the yield curve, you're going to have to cut short-term rates. You know, I know that's where Wayland's at because you can offer to buy that, but the market's going to do it. If you don't do it, the market's going to do it for you anyway, because people are going to get a little nervous. And that's why I don't know why anybody would extend out duration now. Who's buying the long end of the curve? Yeah, well, you know what? The last, the Lehman crisis and the COVID crisis, duration was such an incredible trade. I mean, you could have bought long-term bonds and made like 20% right. uh, because of the Lehman and COVID crisis. And so I think there's been a, a, some people that have been buying the long end that are looking at the inverted yield curve. They're looking at the banking crisis potential. They're, they're looking at the commercial real estate and they're thinking, okay, we get this Lehman slash COVID type rally in, in, in the long end. But that's the pre, that's kind of like recency bias where I'm more leaning toward what yours. I think you do get some rally, but you know, the days of you getting like a rally, you know, down on the 10 year below two and a half percent or over, I think for over for, for the rest of our, my lifetime. And so right now you're on tens, you maybe get a rally three and a half, three and a quarter, but a year from now when they start cutting and then you get a revival, then you're going to be back up, near close to, you know, from four to 5%. And that's where the Fed's going to have to step in and do something because at four to 5% on the long end, it's uh, it's it's really, you know, hard impact uh, on a lot of financing 
especially real estate and banks. So that's where they probably have to stop, stop on yield curve control. One thing in the chat I heard um, this week in terms of currencies, the yuan yen, uh, so the yen versus the yuan uh, is, is breaking out to an all-time uh, record level. And so that's yen weakness, which is, you know, really the last time the yen was this weak versus the yuan, uh, China devalued. And that, that, because what happens is a weaker yen, you know, they're going to steal export market share from all around the world from China. And China's pegged to the dollar, as everybody knows. And so at some point that thing breaks. So that's something to watch. If you make sure you keep an eye on this, I, I know a number of you know, hedge funds. And so what the clients do is we, it's like a live ideas dinner behind me. We yeah. have a conversation. And in, in the old days, we would go to Ben Benson's in New York, we have a steak. And, my assistant would be in the back taking notes. And it's like you get a long equity guy versus a credit guy. You have a debate about either currencies or equities or commodities or um, high yield, whatever it is on, on the, you know, whatever is more topical. And we have this conversation. And I notice what I do is I track the trend of the conversation and we're getting definitely more people that are talking about this yen uh, one stress, which uh, that that's something that, you know, that we really got to keep an eye on. But we discussed that. So I'm interested because I've never heard anybody. I, but I keep that stays up on my on my board right now. So I, get, I know exactly right yeah. now as we talk 20.93 yen to a yuan, which is the highest we've been. Well, you know, if, if you go back to the, when the Chinese did devalue January 1st, 1994, when they devalued the yuan from 5.8 to 8.7, Happened to be the same day that NAFTA started. Right. Little Bill Clinton. God bless him. Yeah. <laughs> NAFTA starts January 1st, 1994. The Chinese devalued the yuan. And then Mexico goes into crisis with the tequila crisis of 1994-95. So when you don't think that they watch, they watch. And they know exactly what's going on here. And, this, and I'm surprised the Japanese have not gotten more pressure from the G7, because they're they're killing Germany too, and right? Germany, right? Germany is tied so much to China, but when you look to see who's killing it in the auto export world, it's China and Japan, and they're taking it right from the Germans. So how and the, the Germans hybrids, hybrids, they're, they're the hybrid revolution, like oh. stealing a lot of market share from the EVs, right? And so that's right. helping Japan too, and, and being priced. With 150 yen, I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, it's it's not a bad situation to be in. And more importantly, you got the euro yen, and I know people get sick of me talking about it, but the euro yen is up at 163. This is these are big things. Oh, just a, a final question, Larry, if it's okay on your thoughts on emerging markets. I know you've been bullish on Brazil. If you're still bullish there, Indonesia, Colombia, Argentina, Kazakhstan, maybe your thoughts? Well, first, Melee, uh, you know, his victory in Argentina is really bullish for Latin American equities because he's such a brilliant communicator and Cristina and that government in uh, Argentina was so corrupt. And so he's outing this uh, nasty corruption that exists you know, throughout Latin America, uh, and those 
are market, those have been market unfriendly governments. And so there's, I think there's going to be a melee contagion in a good way where I think it's you got a Panama election in uh, May. And I think that there's a good chance you get a market friendly solution there because Panama's moved to the left and you get a lot of moves to the left in Chile and Peru and Colombia. So that, that that's probably going to all move a little bit more to the right. In in uh, Brazil, Lula is like he's got a, a pretty conservative legislature. So what happened was it's it's kind of like Obama. Um, Obama was a great president for a lot of reasons, but I mean I'm, I'm a Republican. I didn't vote for him. He's a great president because that you know he had the Republican control of the House and Senate. You know he led from the from the bed, you know from the from the Oval Office, and we. You know, stocks really like that. And that's what you're seeing now in Brazil. And so um, I think Chinese equities are really cheap. I love Baba here. I think that they're going to, they're going to, the problem is when the Fed is so restrictive with rates and keeping rates up, it's not, it's strong dollar. It's not allowing China to ease the way they'd like, the way they'd like. And so when the Fed starts cutting, it's going to be good for China. And um, I like the, uh, EMLC, the Emerging Market Local Currency Bond Fund here. It's JP Morgan, EMLC. It's, uh, you know, pay 6%. But when the Fed's, it's when the Fed stops hiking and when they lean toward cutting, local currency bonds typically do really well. And a lot of those local currency bonds over the last couple of years, because the strong dollar have been hammered and, uh, the funds bounce, but it's 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 a portfolio of like 250 bonds that are Philippines, Brazil, you know, a lot of different emerging market countries, but in local currency. And so, in in a weaker dollar regime, that that's a fund that's going to give you a, a great yield and potentially some upside and appreciation. Well, great, yeah, that's great insight, great points on the emerging markets, and uh, thank you very much for this discussion. How how can our listeners and viewers learn more about your work? Well, the book could be out in, in the, in the sh on the shelves, Random House Penguin, big shout out to them. It's probably the best publisher in the world. When Markets Speak. And um, on Twitter, we're at ConvertBond. Uh, our website is lawrencegmcdonald.com. And, you know, there's lots of different ways. We'll, we'll be out, uh, we'll be in New York for hosting events March, 18th to the say the 26th and so yeah reach out to us and we've been happy we've happened to if you're an institutional investor we'd be happy to put you in the chat um or if you're an investor that wants a recap of the chat and to see the conversation the next day valentina at the beartrapsreport.com valentina at the beartrapsreport.com she can uh put you on distribution well that's great awesome uh and your final thoughts ira Oh, I'm not, you know, I really haven't been blogging at all. So the only uh -huh. place I come to discuss is uh, here. And uh, and these discussions usually are really worthwhile, not just for people who are going to listen to them, I think, but for myself, because here I get to talk with Larry and we get to trade ideas around and to see the way things work and, you know, to get a, a broad perspective. And again, why is the broad perspective it's not going to lead you to make money tomorrow, but it sure as hell may keep you out of some really great uh, and disastrous 
trades when you're following the herd. So it's not herd-like. It thinks through, and I, I really, I've, this was a great pleasure because I really uh, was glad to hear Larry's views on the on the Treasury, on the on the Fed. There's so many things that are in play, and they're in play big, regardless of what the equity market tells you at any given day. That's just money sloshing around looking for things. What's the underlying sense? And it's the way we covered the gold market. So let's look at it. And how is the gold able to, to slough off 2.5% overnight real yields? How is it? If you're not perplexed by that, well, you got to rethink a lot because, you know, I I thought in this environment, we'd see gold back down in the 1580, 1620 area and get an opportunity. It hasn't happened. So who's playing with it here? And as I say to people, if that's the case, so because everybody, you know, everybody cites the reason gold doesn't break is because all the central banks are busy loading up on gold. So some people ask me, I said, well, how much is the Fed buying? I said, not a dime's worth. The Fed doesn't buy gold. Uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, when you're re the reserve currency of the world, you don't have to buy. Everybody's partaking of what you're pushing out there every day. But it does prompt me to ask a question. Well, then why is platinum so weak? Is, is it, is the only precious metal that exists that banks know how to buy gold? So, you know, I need to see more convergence of, of, of things for me to be into certain camps, but we get there by having these conversations because these don't, they don't get asked where most people are watching, you know, in the mainstream media, be it CNBC or they don't have these conversations. So this is like a great pleasure because I don't get to have these, but I appreciate it with, with Larry and everything that you bring to the table, Richard, so to make these doable. So thanks. Yeah. Thank, yeah, thank, thank you. So gentlemen. Much. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, last, no, I'm uh, gonna and I'm yeah. gonna plug in and listen. On uh, when you do that with I don't know who who your guests who who's gonna be sitting when you do that chat. Uh, the one you talked about is it just gonna be or it's you're going to New York for that, right? Yeah, we're gonna do a cock like a cocktail party with some of the media and clients, and then we're gonna do other types of events uh, in the city, but. Uh, yeah, the, the book launch is key because you, to get on the New York Times list, you need to sell about 8,000 books in a week. 8,000? So we, we were fortunate enough to do that with our first book, yeah. A Colossal Failure of Common Sense. <laughs> but we had the Lehman failure and all that attention. And so now uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a big challenge to try to move uh, that kid. That so we've got a, a, lot, a lot of work ahead of us. <laughs> well, hopefully this will attracts some viewers. I mean, if I was blogging, I would put it out there, but I don't know. We, we get a lot of views, so it may, it may help uh, foment book sales. Great. Great. Yeah. Thank you very much, Larry and Ira. Thanks, Larry. Appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks Richard. The FRA Roundtable Insight Show is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the show each involve their own unique risk factors which are not discussed on the show. 
Any discussions among the panel participants or responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the panel participants and do not take into consideration the listener's suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Please be advised that you invest or speculate at your own risk. 